The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Friday, July 19th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Man walked on the moon 50 years ago tomorrow, which is to say 49 years, 364 days ago. It was a pretty huge event, I would say, in America's obituary, it's first paragraph type stuff. It was a strange event in that its promise and its execution are both marked by two extremely famous quotes that each have something wrong with them. So Neil Armstrong, this is the execution part, said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But he meant to say that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Furthermore, he didn't just mean to say it. He says he did say it when the audio equipment swallowed the A. It does make sense since, generally speaking, man and mankind, similar, if not synonymous. Then there was JFK in 1962 announcing the moonshot on a day so sweltering in Houston that behind him, Lyndon B. Johnson was just frequently, wantonly mopping his head with a kerchief. We all remember, I think we remember, or at least have seen newsreel footage of JFK talking that day. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Decade decayed. And I like when he said, and the other things, some such, <laughs> that grab bag of things. What is that? What are these other things? I don't know. I'm too fixated on decayed. When we bring the moon rocks back, we hope they have not decayed. And we will go right to the moon. We will not take a detour. <laughs> I don't No one does a, no one does a JFK anymore. They do a Mayor Quimby. Anyway, reading that speech, I came across this, right? This is, uh, that was in 1962, September 62. I came across this from the coverage of the Rice student paper. While in Houston, the president also conferred for about 45 minutes with Democratic gubernatorial nominee John Connolly. So in 14 months and 10 days from that moment, both of those men would be in the motorcade in Daly Plaza, one wounded, one killed. That is history. Now, I was thinking back on that history, and when we had the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, it was, it was a big deal. I think the moon landing is getting more coverage, and in general, the good things and the accomplishments are remembered more because... They can both be remembered and celebrated and not just remembered and mourned. And this is true with 9-11, which was, of course, a huge event. But I, I do not sense to this point that the anniversaries that are divisible by five have been that much more significant in terms of media coverage, societal attention than the anniversaries that haven't been. But I was talking to a publisher, someone who works in publishing the other day, and he notes that baby boomer nostalgia is waning. And this is why I think that the moon landing is getting less attention than I thought it would. I mean, I thought every TV network would have a special. If you look at all the many books that have been written, they haven't 
shot up the bestseller chart. You would think that maybe HBO would have wall-to-wall coverage like they did with Tom Hanks and that Going to the Moon special a few years ago. But the baby boomers are around 80 years old and they're not big consumers anymore and they're not driving media consumption. Spielberg and Tom Hanks aren't the most culturally ascendant figures. So an element of that is why the moon landing hasn't been getting so much obsession. I asked, it will not be on the cover of Slate tomorrow. I think that if it were an event that were more salient to younger people, it might be. When I think about the events, but there are other events that are equally in the past or even further in the past that have gotten a bit more coverage, or at least as much coverage as I thought. I think Selma, the 50th anniversary of Selma a few years ago, got more coverage, got more attention. I think the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which happened, concentrated us more. I even think, and this is probably just a New York City thing, but I think the Stonewall 50th anniversary got more attention than the moon landing did, and that's kind of nuts. But I have a theory about this, which is that I think for all of those D-Day, Stonewall, Selma, there is an element of identity. There are groups today that identify with with what went on then. And in the case of D-Day, I include veterans as a group, as a group that sees itself as a group and sees their history as running through those events and in fact being shaped and defined by those events. As for the moon landing, well, what's the identity element? Who identifies themselves or alongside the astronauts who landed on the moon? Maybe scientists to some degree. But I think, and this is the sad thing, I think the identity of those who walked on the moon was simply Americans. And the lack of society-wide ubiquitous blowout coverage is because with the identity being Americans, these days that's just not so much of a shared identity. On the show today, it's an Antan Twig. We listen and we answer all your mail and emails. But first, Calvin Coolidge once said that the chief business of the American people is business. They are profoundly concerned with producing, buying, selling, investing, and prospering in the world. Well, is that fun, really? What's fun is Chuck E. Cheese and Schlitz beer with weird off-putting particles floating in it. The business of American business may be business, but the business of failure of American business. Now that's compelling. And Coolidge himself, I don't know if he's a failure, but he's often ranked or almost always ranked in the bottom half of American presidents and chose not to run for re-election. And business failures are even more interesting than stories about Calvin Coolidge. Lauren Ober has collected many of these stories of business failure for her new podcast, Spectacular Failures. And she is here to do an interview so scintillating, it will give lie to the very title of her program. Lauren Ober of American Public Media's Spectacular Failures, up next. Failure has an interesting place in our national psyche. When it's the middle chapter of a story, we kind of love it. We pour over it. We take lessons from it. It's cited as a means of building character. But when it's the last chapter in the story, often that story is never written. We don't like to talk about it. Sometimes afterwards, failure is excavated 
as if by an anthropologist. And like the fragments of an ancient civilization, you could pick over them and find a lesson or two. That, not in the anthropology way, but more in the wise-ass business reporter way, that is the task of Lauren Ober with her new podcast, Spectacular Failures, Corporate crookedness, that's some of them. Family feuding, mm mm-hmm. Hilariously half-baked decisions. Did I tell you there was a MoviePass episode? Lauren Ober is the host of this enterprise. Hello, Lauren. Thanks for coming on. Hi. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. What makes, there are many failures out there. In fact, if you look at the stock market, for every seller, there's a buyer. But what makes a spectacular failure so spectacular that you want to do a, that you want to do a story on it? You know, I think that, yeah, you're right. There, I mean, there are a million failures, right, uh, that we could look at. But I think what is appealing to me is, like, do real people interact with the thing that failed? So, you know, Enron, classic failure, really hard to tell a story about it unless you can find how real people were impacted. Um, and, you know, business stories are complicated. And so you need, you know, you need real people to tell the stories of these failures. So I am looking at, you know, products, brands, industries, things that like you and I would interact with, photography, funeral homes, beer, um, where it's like, oh, I didn't know that that failed, or I knew that that failed and I didn't know why or how or the people behind it. So it's a little bit of a calculus for sure to to figure it out. Does that mean it has to be a consumer product? So far, what, five are out? How many are coming? Four. We've done four. We did, like you said, movie pass, um, Schlitz beer. We talk about this huge funeral industry giant. And we talk about Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's uh, grand Christian theme park that failed um, in the 80s in South Carolina. So yeah. they're all sort of things that you you might, as a regular person, have your hands in at some point. I mean, we're all going to die, apparently. So we're all going to interact with the funeral industry. You might not have interacted with this particular company. Um, or you may have, the because they were, they were everywhere. Yeah, yeah. They were. And you wouldn't have even known that you had interacted with them because that's how the business worked. It was mm-hmm. secretive. One of the great joys of that story is the other three are industries or products that are meant to be known by everyone. And there's a little bit of, you're kind of telling the secrets of the funeral industry in that story. Like you might think it's the neighborhood funeral home, but it's owned by this one corporation with, and then you tick off the weird traits, this Canadian guy who has one of the world's biggest yachts and hasn't been heard from for 14 years. Yeah, no, it's totally weird. I mean, this is one of my favorite stories that we've done. Most people don't go to a funeral home unless you are planning a funeral or you're going to a funeral or you're dead. And so it was just great to like sort of immerse yourself in this industry that I just knew absolutely nothing about. And then on top of that, learn how this small family in Mississippi totally upended the business of this guy that you mentioned, who is this, you know, Canadian multimillionaire who had this giant yacht where he would wine and dine other funeral homeowners before trying to poach their businesses. It's an outstanding story of and and one that I didn't know because a lot of these have, have predate me as uh, as an adult, as a reporter. You know, a lot of them happen in the eighties. Not surprisingly, like thanks deregulation. But uh, but there's the, the I I knew that they failed. I knew something went wrong, but I didn't know why. And I love right. that. Well, it seems like the first two, and maybe there'll be variations on this because four are out. So the first two, Tammy Faye Baker and Movie Pass, are the sort of ideas where if you showed the book 
to any decently competent economics mind, he would say, well, this can't work. And they didn't. Right, right, right. Well, and, and you know, so they're, they're slightly different. I want to make sure that, that we express this, that, like, that, you know, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, or Jim Baker was convicted of, of fraud, right? Um, yeah. And they, they sold something that they didn't have. MoviePass is different in that it went through a couple of iterations, but on its face, you'd say, yeah, how is it possible that they could make money off of me spending $10 a month but going to 10 movies? Right. Like, but I'm they're... spending $100. Yes. And so the economics of it, in your mind, you're like, mm, that doesn't quite make sense. Right, and there is one bank shot theory where there are lost leaders and there's breakage, but I do think, actually, they're more similar because the fraud conviction was based on, essentially, a movie pass type model, right? Just right. playing the game that the producers played, uh, selling more inventory than you had. <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. Um, and but always, you know, but always saying no, we're fine. Like we, the hotels. So you know, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker were, you know, um, they were popped for overselling, essentially. Hotel rooms. They sold yeah. these memberships for their hotels at this Heritage USA resort, and uh, and they they didn't have enough of them. They were timeshares, but you know when you have a timeshare situation, like the people have to be able to use it when they want to use it. And his, you know, Jim Baker's whole thing was, well, we will make more. We are building more, and he was addicted sure. to building. His son Jay Baker on the show says my father was addicted to building, and so it was like these will come. But the courts were like, yeah, it doesn't matter if they haven't come yet. They need to be here now. Um, and so, you know, he ended up doing time in prison. Yeah. You have to wonder when the guy who's telling you that they will come also believes in the second coming of Christ right. and is waiting for the judgment day. Like, if that is well, actually fundamental to the business strategy, I'm glad the courts interceded in the way they did. Right. It, although, you know, it's funny because you in your intro, you sort of teed up that, you know, this, this failure is the last chapter. But what I've learned in this is that it's never the last chapter. Um, most of these folks uh, go on I mean, they do not lose everything in America. Um, and, I mean, Jim Baker was a perfect example. You know, he did he did time in prison uh, for, for this fraud, and then he got out, and he sort of wandered the desert a little bit, proverbially, and then he ends up with a whole new, a whole new ministry out in Branson, Missouri, where he is preaching end of days, and he's sort of doomsday prophesying, and he's selling goods. He's selling freeze-dried food and, and all this stuff off his website. Actually, I'm sorry, they're donations, so you mm -hmm. can buy, you can, you can purchase one, and the, it is a donation to the ministry. But so, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, the second coming is his, is his new thing. It used to be the prosperity gospel, but, uh, but now it's, <laughs> now it's rapture time, so. He's got something called a bung something? What's the, what was the bung? There's a bung Gosh. involved? So, I know, I know. This I, It was too good not to include. So, he sells uh, for donation uh, these these food buckets, these freeze-dried food buckets that have like a 20-year shelf life or something. So, you put it in your underground bunker, right? But in order to get the lid off, yeah. you need a special wrench. And <laughs> it's sold separately. It's sold, sold separately, and it is called a bung wrench. And I do not know the origin of that. Somebody can, you know, some etymologist can look that one up. But I thought this is such a genius idea. He actually, he was a very, very smart and savvy 
man. And I think that what I learned from that story is that a lot of those preachers were and the new generation of of uh, TV ministries yeah. uh, who have now sort of migrated to the internet, right. they are who've genius. become the preachers I mean, and they, sneakers, yeah. Uh, the preachers and sneakers, they are genius. They are selling a lifestyle. They are selling um, a, um, a a sort of connection to some type of spirituality, but it's also sort of self-help. Um, you're part of community. I mean, as a business, it's pretty brilliant. Um, and they make use of every single benefit that religious entities get um, in America in terms of taxes and all that stuff. So, you know, it is it's a, it is an amazing and very American homegrown business. So I like the uh, I like the Schlitz beer episode, I think the best, because I think it had the most subtleties. I mean, it's classic uh, spectacular failure. Along the way, we learn that during, the, during Prohibition, Schlitz makes chocolate and Pabst makes cheese or something. But yep. the whole the whole business of Schlitz beer turns on the fact that there are these little flakes in the beer and it turns off their consumer. So you might think, oh, they made a product, they had a product, they made the product worse, people hated their product and therefore they're out of business. But it's not that simple as you describe it. It's the reason they thought that they could be, that they could kind of cheap out on their beer is what drove them to make this mistake. Right, right. You know, their their feeling was, look, nobody's going to know. We're going to tinker with our formula. No one's going to know. And people are just going to drink it because they're devoted to us. Um, but I think they miscalculated. They misunderstood their customers, but they also misunderstood this sort of larger game, um, which is that it was, it was a, about marketing and it was about PR. And if you have bad press, you know, people, there are four or five other, you know, um, utility beer brands that you could choose from. Right. Um, you don't have to stick with Schlitz, you know, but they, they were, um, it had up to a point known that marketing was the key. I mean, they made so many commercials and they made every bit of swag. I mean, you name it. If they could put their name Schlitz on it, they did. I mean, from a, you know, I can't, I just, I went into this guy's basement, Leonard, he was on the show, and he's like the largest collector of Schlitz Breweriana in the country. Mm. I mean, he has so much, I would say in excess of a million dollars worth of <laughs> memorabilia. Um, and it's just remarkable. But at some point, Schlitz totally cut that budget out and said, yeah, it's, you know, we're good. Like, We'll just coast for a while, and they couldn't coast because because uh, they made this product that people found undrinkable. So, you it's, know, it, it was a cautionary tale. I think of 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 you know, understand like what game you're playing and what your customers want, and they actually do want something that is drinkable. You know? Well, the way I took it was that they probably said the actual beer is so beside the point. It's all marketing. I bet you they had um, studies that showed in blind taste tests, maybe loyal customers could identify their beer, but no one liked one kind of beer over another. This was always the funny thing about the Pepsi Challenge. Pepsi Challenge was right. great in terms of marketing, but what they were marketing was that the taste was better. Just the taste right. being better was – think about what that <laughs> said. Before they had a huge marketing campaign telling people who have definitely tasted both that the taste was better. The taste being better did nothing for them. So anyway, Schlitz right. – Schlitz, 
thought they had this one truth that it really doesn't matter what's in the bottles. What matters is the marketing. But they forgot right. that there was one aspect. The one thing that mattered in the bottles is what your brother Russ told you is consistency. It doesn't have to taste good or it doesn't have to look good. Just have to look and taste like it always looked. And once they screwed that up, they were done. Totally. Yeah. And I think you're right about the taste thing. I mean, that's why, you know, this is why the, the cigarette companies knew, like, uh, you know, Paul Mall and Winston-Salem. I mean, unless it has some type of, you know, filter on it. I mean, most people can't tell the difference between the cigarettes, um, you know, unless you have menthol or something like that in them. And it was the same thing with these sort of utility everyman beers, which was largely what the beer market was at that time. It was like, you know, it, it, it people were attached to a brand, but if the brand let them down— you know, um, right. then they would move along. So, and that's what happened. So in, I think the last episode I heard, you quoted a guy there. So people should know, you go places, you talk to principals, and you talk to experts too. When you quoted a guy who wrote a book about something like the 25 biggest failures and what they can teach you. So my question yeah. is, what could they teach you or what did they teach him? And what have you learned or what has it taught you from doing the show maybe different from uh, the lessons that that guy learned from his book? Right, right. Well, what have we learned? You know, that I think really, because we try to put, sort of put a coda on these stories of, you know, where people are now or what have you. And a lot of folks, the individuals, the principals who are involved in this, you know, they do have some kind of second or third act. Um in other countries, um, we don't. There aren't bankruptcy rules in the same way that there are here in the U.S. I mean, if you fail in, you know, in Germany or Sweden or something, if your company goes bust, you don't have the benefit of the type of bankruptcy protection that we have here in the U.S., where you can write off losses and you can recover, um, and it's much harder to 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 sort of uh, pick yourself back up. And so in that way, I mean, it's this sort of failure that we're looking at is, is feels very American. You know, and this isn't, this is not a partisan comment at all, but, you know, we see it in our current president who has filed for, for bankruptcy. His businesses have been bankrupt many times, and yet he's in the highest office in the land. And we will be doing a story about Trump's Atlantic uh, City casinos. That's our last episode, so. <laughs> Ooh, Will it be uh, the the Taj Mahal? Will it be Trump's uh, at the marina? There's so many to choose, so many Ooh. failures to choose from. It seems like it seems like you knew, know your way around uh, the Atlantic City casinos. Are you uh, are you a bit of a, <laughs> a a risk taker, a gambler? I could sing I could sing the ma the the jingle for the Trump casinos. You ready? Uh yes, please do it now. I know you're gonna play this song, but Trump's hotel and casino. <laughs> Vegas, Tahoe, and Reno, but it was in Atlantic no. City. They were just trying to. Yeah. That is, I feel like that's my episode right there. Like, I don't even need to do 30 minutes on, I just need Pesca singing, and that's the episode. So what is the, have, were you down there? We haven't been yet. No, we're going, we're going down next week. What is the Taj now? The Taj is now the Hard Rock oh, uh, yeah. Hotel and Casino, and the Marina uh, the Trump Marina is now Golden Nugget, and the plaza is nothing. The plaza is yeah, uh, a shell of itself, and it still bears Trump's name, and that was, they have been fighting. He's been fighting to get his name taken off this building that is decrepit, um, and, 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 and the judge is like, 
Yeah, I don't think so. Until you deal with the building, your name's not coming off of it. Yeah, before it was decrepit, it was pre-crepit. I want you to know I've been there. <laughs> Lauren Ober is the host of the podcast, Spectacular Failures, where she documents just that, and she will sell you a bung wrench for half the price that Jim Baker is selling you. <laughs> Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> My pleasure, Mike. And now the Antan Twig, our name that describes an aching sadness or painful nostalgia for one's homeland or bygone days. No, wait, that is the Welch word, hyrath, hyrath, hyrath. Anyway, what Antan Twig is, it's a three-week period, and in our case, we have gone double Antwig on your butts. But we're back. We're answering it all. The number one segment I did and that I got comments upon was on they, them versus him, her. Some of them, some of you did not like the they, them segment, or maybe some of us did not cotton to the, I don't even know anymore. No, what really happened was that I got good comments and I got bad comments. Well, Mike, what's a bad comment? One that disagrees with you? No, actually, I will now read a comment that disagreed with me and it was a good comment. You ready? Mike, this is from uh, Zach Gerlock. I usually agree with you. All right, pro tip. You want to start off? Great way to start off. Get some on my good side. I usually agree with you, or at least find your positions reasonable. That's all that I'm going for. But in this subject, the linguistic viability of they, them pronouns, you are wrong. I have never before felt one of your opinions has been so plainly wrong, nor have I felt the need to write to your show before. I have heard many episodes, or nearly every episode, at double speed. I had felt pretty much exactly the same way on this subject as you do now, up until my partner and I moved to a more progressive area, and they felt safe enough to switch away from female pronouns meaning his partner. Purely linguistically, I had deep misgivings about this. It's unfortunate our language is gendered, but can we really change it? Won't there be a bunch of vague sentences that need clarification because of this? But I came around, and he goes on to say it's possible to change. And that, that this is a good letter because that is my theory, that I think society will put up roadblocks. Not that I'm against it. Not that someone shouldn't try to ask people to identify them as they if that's what they want. It wasn't a should-ought-to argument. It's a will-won't-it argument. And this brings up the bad reaction. I don't know, bad reaction, but people who just... We're arguing with a different point that I was making, like uh, Nat, who's at TM Palmer, seriously at Pescami, that's my Twitter handle. I'm asking you to sit with this one and think about it for a while. Your name is Mike, and if you ask me to use your pronoun he, it takes nothing away from me. But if someone asks me to use they, I will have to work a little harder, but I will. So will I. I call people they if they want to be called they. Again, it wasn't a should ought to argument. It was a will won't argument. My thesis was uh, just a comment about how likely it is for the language to change. I predict not that likely. Oh, but I got comments instructing me that, Mike, the language evolves all the time. Moan Chomsky, good Twitter name, writes, language evolves. It always has. Dictionaries are descriptive, not proscriptive. Yes, yes, dictionaries describe. They describe the natural world. And yet I was inundated with this other thought, this parallel thought, quoting dictionaries as saying they is used to describe a singular. Josh writes, the use of they as a gender neutral singular pronoun is not new. 
I have been a communication English teacher for close to 20 years, and for more than a decade, the National Council of Teachers of English has accepted they as a gender-neutral singular pronoun, and then he spells out the case, or they spell out the case. Don't want to presume anything, Josh. Yes, yes, of course. When the noun is ambiguous, the pronoun they is often, can be, is preferred by some people in the place of he or she. Example, if someone's late, just tell them to come in without knocking. And the reason we say that is because the language evolves. But pointing to the fact that the language evolves really says nothing about my argument, which is when the language is forced to go in a direction it does not naturally want to go into, it will often rebel. Not always, right? I talked about Latinx, and I talked about African Americans instead of Black, and I talked about Mumbai instead of Bombay. I acknowledge that in certain specific words, you could change things. It's just not with a pronoun, not with the 21st most common word in the English language. I predict, I think it will be hard, is what I am saying. But when people objected, and when people tried to tell me that they will no longer be listening to the show because I am so cruel as to not call a person they or them when they want to be called they or them, since I do call people they and them, this is a bad comment. Those people were perhaps not listening correctly. You know, I asked several people to listen to my comments to see if they could be misconstrued. And all of these people, they said no. All right, I didn't ask several people. I asked one person. It was my girlfriend, but I'm going to call her they. They all agreed. So here was one comment from TM Palmer, who cited kindness, basic human decency, by calling someone by the non-offensive word they request. And TM Palmer went on to say, she will no longer be listening to my podcast. My deleting your podcast probably makes no difference to you, but I choose what I listen to. I value differing opinions, but I don't have to listen to someone who refuses to consider the effect his words have. Whose words have? Oh, his words have. In a commentary, where my take was that they will not root and branch replace he or him. Because the original thesis is put out by Farhad Manju of the New York Times was that they should replace he and hers. You're saying that you don't want to listen to someone who refuses to consider the effects his words have. I could argue you back from the brink, but you've deleted the podcast. Maybe if someone knows this person, you can tell this person I've addressed their concerns. We got a good comment from Marcy LaViolette. LaViolette. It's a great coincidence that you made fun of the way Margaret Atwood says capillaries because I recently discovered that my Canadian boyfriend says it the same odd way. Here is tape of uh, the novelist Margaret Atwood on conversations with Tyler saying capillaries. It's a Canadian reason. If you drink and then go out into the cold, all of your blood is going to be in your capillaries. <laughs> you will freeze to death. And Marcy writes... I responded the same way as you when I heard that my boyfriend says capillaries the same way. I made fun of him. That's good. That is the right thing to do. We both never heard it any other way, and the internet was inconclusive. I don't know if all Canadians say capillaries, but at least two do. P.S. My favorite American-Canadian word disagreement is decal. We say decal, and they say decal. They do? (laughs) Thank you, Marcy. As I said to you when you wrote in, perhaps they just desperately need a rhyme for fecal. 
When I was talking about the service fee that was imposed on a ticket purchasing experience of mine of like ten fifty or so, Amy Shinkman, and this is this is good use of the Wayback Machine. Amy Shinkman wrote to me and said, "Hi, Mike, a ten fifty service fee for online tickets, really?" And then she attached her receipt for my live show in Washington D.C. that I did a two couple years ago. Two tickets at $30, 60 bucks, delivery method, printed home, service fee, 1050. Yes, yes. I'll, I'll Venmo you the difference, Amy. Or no, you know what? Better yet, I will name you co-lobstar of the Antan Twig. Lobster of the Antan Twig is the listener who most and best contributes to our experience here at The Gist. You are co-lobstar of the Antan Twig with two gentlemen who are talking about when I eulogized, I guess, or remembered Ross Perot and Jeff Stack and Paul Vickers both wrote in that I can't believe you passed over the chance to mention Ross Perot in your outro with an oomperu, duperu, de Perot. Working the Perot in there. And those are good, good suggestions. But of course, since it was a eulogy of Ross Perot, perhaps I could have said, um, Peru, dead Perot, do Perot. Just one way to go. Paul, Jeff, Amy, congratulations on being lobsters of the Antan Twig. And we'll see you in another three weeks or as we celebrate the Antan Twig, I don't know, maybe a month and a half. That's it for today's show. And yes, it is true. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist, but I want to talk about TJ Raphael. It is her last day at Slate as senior producer, and she has been fantastic taking on the work. Well, I would say the work of three or four people, except the work she was doing were things that so many of us could scarcely envision before she did them. What a great colleague she is. She is going on to great things with, I believe, Sony and my friend Adam. Adam, treat her well. She has been a fantastic employee and friend. She sat four seats away from me and would often laugh out loud at the things I say. A key factor in what defines a fantastic Slate employee. TJ, we will miss you. On What Next, the Gist sister podcast. I hope I'm not misgendering What Next. Eh, all podcasts are all days for everyone. Anyway, What Next, right now in your feed, you could hear Mary Harris talk about Deutsche Bank, the one lender, I don't know of last resort, but of Trump's resort, Deutsche Bank and Trump in the What Next feed right now. The gist, I think spectacular failure might be tempted to do new Coke. Don't, my advice, Pepsi Clear. A little remembered, but quite strange product. Improve, Depro, Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>